This is Ebodian X, and this is The Candid Frame. There are a lot of things that you have to learn in order to become a great photographer. But beyond shutter speed, aperture, depth of field, and the rule of thirds, the most important thing to develop is a sense of what people, places, things, or moments are worthy of a photograph. We often take our cues from what others have photographed, and we frequently mimic what those photographers did to create those images. And that's okay, because that's a big part of learning photography. But a remarkable thing happens when a photographer is led to photograph their own life experiences and circumstances. That began for Meryl Meisler when she began photographing her Jewish-American family and community. That eventually segued into her documentation of New York's social scene during the late 70s and eventually to her photographing the Bushwick community where she worked as a teacher at a local public school. The result is a body of work that is not only highly personal, but that provides a unique glimpse into three different cultural communities over a span of years. And part of why she gave herself permission to photograph in that way was inspired by several photographers, not least of which was Deanne Arbus. Seeing Deanne Arbus's work had a direct influence on me. When I went to the show, I was just going to MoMA, and I saw the show. I, like I said, I was moved. I saw them as very honest, beautiful portraits of human beings. And they struck me. And they also seemed familiar to me. Like, I didn't see it as being a a freak of a giant and his little parents. I saw them, those reminded me of my great aunt and uncle. You know, like like my family's from there. I recognize the, the backgrounds. They struck me as very human people. Her photographs of the club scene capture a mashup of race, ethnicity, class, and sexuality that would not have been possible even a decade before. It was a rare and exciting time, and Merrill was in the midst of it all with her camera. You could be next to someone who was very well known, and I didn't feel like there was a security next to them at all. And also a lot of people of different ages, and, and people you can see by, by photographs, there's a lot of people who you would might call transgender people, though they might would say cross-dresser or trans, I don't remember what word, but just everyone was everybody. And no, everybody was anybody. And you had all different kinds of people who loved dancing, music, the scene. And it was also very, it was very exciting because it, it was kind of growing around you. I mean, it was a music and dance form that dance that kind of came from under your feet and was blossoming everywhere and it, and it felt it felt like you were in the midst of it all we'll talk to Merrill about how and why she created her body of work while still having a full career as a teacher and how in retirement she has become recognized for her lifelong work as a photographer welcome to the candid frame
So, Meryl, welcome to The Candid Frame. I am so excited to have you on the show. Well, I am so pleased to be seeing you again. Yeah, I had such a good time chatting with you when we were in Miami. That was so much fun. That was beyond fun. That was really great. Yeah. That was really great. And Good seeing fun. your work, it was I was just so in awe. It was just so impressive. And the story behind it, it just, you know, just made it all the all the richer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I want my listeners to find out a lot about you. So we're going to try to cram in okay. as much as we can in the limited time that we have. Now, I, I want to get started because part of your story is that you came from a family in uh, in New York where you had a couple of photographers in the family. You know, yes. you had, uh, and that, that, even though you may not have immediately picked up a camera when you were a young kid, that, that made an, an impression on you. Tell me about those people. Yes, it's very true that we would never say that it was a family of photographers, but in retrospect, yes. My dad, Jack Meisler, was a printer by trade. He had his own printing company but he was a really good photographer. And he had a twin lens reflex. He had one of the first Polaroids. He did movies. And he, he, I have his negatives from when he was younger. Did you see photographs he took of his brothers in a tree? And then when he was dating my mother, you know, his wife and, and extended family. And of course, every special occasion. But they were not, they're really fantastic photographs. I mean, he even photographed, our house when I had a house fire, a still lives. He's a really um, good photographer. He has a great eye and, and an awful art, art. And always told me that anyone who has a gift, you know, for the arts is very fortunate. And he also, but he also brought home printing place from home and it were copper and, and he'd polish them up and put hooks on it and hang them. And that was art. So he, he opened eyes to art. But my father's father is named Murray Miser, and he's a machinist by pr- trade. And every time I ever saw my grandfather, he had a very serious camera, mm-hmm. like a rangefinder, a Leica-looking kind of camera, or like, and a light meter in your face. And he was, he was photographing. And my father's brother, his, my Uncle Al, he always had a camera. I mean, and he used it. It was just an ordinary part of life. And, and like I, I told you and everybody else says that my grandfather, maybe I saw one or two of his photographs. And so I understand someone like Vivian Meyer's story, that it's like really mm-hmm. the act photography is enough unto itself <laughs> that you just do it because like you whistle right. or you, or you have dinner together, but, but it was obviously a passion. And there's, I have photographs of my a photograph of my grandfather holding a press camera. I heard that he built his own tintype camera, but nobody knows where his work is. So I, I think that made an impression that photography is something that's very natural part of life. I did receive my first camera at age seven. Uh, oh, okay. I, don't, I don't have it. I actually still have it. I don't have it here. It's a 620 camera. I took film and sent it out. And it was called The Adventurer. And I photographed my little brothers and my pets, friends on the block, school, Girl Scouts, the same things I did later on. Man, you got started early than me. (laughs) There you go. That's great. Uh, You went to college, but not necessarily got a degree in in photography, though you took some classes while you were in in college. So it seems like you were interested in being creative, but you weren't really sort of clear in terms of what exactly you wanted to 
to do. So tell me how, how and why photography started sort of creeping into your, into your, into your consciousness in a more substantive way. To my undergraduate degree, I went to school for something just not knowing, but I'm of the age that te- girls become teachers or secretaries. And I, freshman year, I was taking, I went to Buffalo State College and I was taking psychology classes, elementary ed. I took a beginning art class and then it ended in beginning art class. I mean, art for non-majors. The professor said, did you ever think about becoming switching into art and I literally felt my heart pounding mm. and and I called my parents up and I said I'd like to switch it to art and they said as long as you got a teaching degree so you could always make a living I did not take any photography classes in undergraduate school though a very famous phot- uh, teacher was at, at Buffalo State Leslie Crims but I wasn't even aware of it I took drawing painting mm. ceramics everything else and then in my senior year I took, took myself to MoMA and I saw the Diana Arbus retrospective and I was moved, deeply moved. For graduate school, because I had, had a, my degree was in art education, you have to get a master's within five years, no matter what. I wasn't sure what to do. I, I accepted a position <laughs> to go to University of Wisconsin at Madison for many reasons, but I had met some when I went to visit the school, I met a friend of a friend, Sandy Fellman, and she was take. She said, "Oh, the photography classes here are great. It's a great program. It's got Cavalier Ketchum. It's just wonderful." So I thought when I decided to go, I was going to start. I was starting my master's in, in art education. I wanted to really study illustration. I got in as art ed. I decided to take a photography class because to ah, learn how to use a real camera. So I bought a 35 millimeter camera and I read the instructions on the plane and jammed the camera, which is like the story of my life. And took the introduction to photography class with Cavalier and was introduced to the work of a WPA artist, the FSA artist, more of Arbus, Lartigue, Jacques-Henri Lartigue. When I went home, on my first vacation, and but then I had a Monolta SRT 101. I started immediately taking self portraits and photographs of my family in France. I took those, came back from vacation, developed a film, made a, made a contact sheet, and the professor said, What is going on in these pictures? What <laughs> is this? I said, What do you mean? He said, I've never seen anything like this. What are you talking about? Look at these backgrounds. Look at the look at the stuff in the room. Look at look at the the furniture. Look at the wallpaper. It's like, you know, where is this? I said, this is where I come from. I you know, come from Long Island, the suburbs of New York City. It's like everyone's house looks like this. And he, <laughs> he explained to me. He said because he 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 was from New Mexico and he was documenting Native Americans and people from moved from Mexico and he talked about how people's environment kind of represents a lot about their culture mm-hmm. and it's almost, it's almost like uh, anthropology or excavating a archaeological site what, what they put up there and, and it really talks about a time and a place it's like a capsule and I was pretty surprised but I, I getting printing the work I decided I wanted to get more detail. So next time I went home, I bought a used 
Grand Flex Norita, two and a quarter. <laughs> and, and I continued doing these self-portraits, uh, going into the family attic and taking out like my ballerina outfits and Girl Scout outfits and tap dance, my, my youth, and playing in the living room and taking photographs of my family at holiday dinners and get-togethers, visiting my, my friends I grew up with and photographing them. I would take clamp lights. I feel like another major influence was that I went to the theater a lot growing up in New York. My parents were not the kinds that just kept us out Long Island. Besides the fact that my dad's business was in Manhattan and family in the Bronx, but we went to see Broadway shows, half price tickets. And I think I had a really big influence because I kind of was setting the stage of these interiors. I put up two clamp lights and I, Action, take photographs. You, know, you are you are so ahead of your time because everything you're doing is what a lot of young women are doing now on Instagram, right? They're doing exactly what you described, especially like costumes, setting up self-portraits, considering the environment they're shooting in all the time. And you were doing it years ago. You just didn't have Instagram. Thank you, thank you. And it's really and it's funny, but my my I switched from I worked my way in the art department. I switched into a double major. My major, my major professor was illustration, an illustration drawing professor, Donald Anderson. He was like my best friend and mentor. And then my minor was photography. And I kept that through and, and had a, my master's show was my drawings and illustrations and my photographs. And a lot of the photographs that are in Sassy 70s are really work that I was started taking back then. Yeah. You know, the girls, it was like for my master's show, but then when I graduated, I wanted to continue this work and I wanted to I moved to the city, but I went out to Long Island and continued this series. I, I want to go back to, you mentioned Deanne Arbus. And I, I think it's really fascinating when I take a uh, look at your work and I see a lot of links to her, not so much direct inspirations, but this idea that really strikes me, especially when I think back to that period in time, is that people, the kinds of people that Deanne photographed and that you photographed weren't typically seen on gallery walls, right? That the, those, those were people that basically were just completely under the radar as far as the fine art world was concerned, right? They were, people were often photographed outside or in a more form, you know, outside of the country in different cultures and different environments. And and I'm wondering if that experience of seeing Deanne's work and the way I describe the people that she photographs are extraordinary, ordinary people, right? I like that. I, I'm I'm wondering whether seeing that work sort of made an impression on you in terms of who was worthy of being photographed. I know you may not have consciously been thinking about that, when, but when you think about your work and her work and some other people, do you think part of what was at play, maybe even unconsciously, was that? Seeing Dion Arbus's work had a direct influence on me. I was, when I went to the show, I was just going to MoMA, and I saw the show, I, like I said, I was moved. I saw them as very honest, beautiful portraits of human beings. 
And they struck me and they also seemed familiar to me. Like I didn't see it as being a a freak of a giant and his little parents. Mm -hmm. I saw them, those reminded me my great aunt and uncle, you know, like like my family's from there, but I recognized the the backgrounds. It did not, um, they struck me as very human people. Mm -hmm. And it was a combination of Arbus and then being introduced to the work of Jacques-Henri Lartigue because he photographed very playful photographs of his family at the turn of the 20th century, growing up in Paris, and they were really, really funny, hysterical, honest, candid pictures. So I think the combination of those two inspired me. But of course, the decision, when I was going to a medium format, I saw this camera and it was this nice square and it was light. And the, uh, you know, the gold, I remember Blair Ketchum said, oh, it's the golden rule. Mm -hmm. I also switching back to it because I just got it working again. This camera has been out of commission for 18 years. It's like, oh, my God, I'm so glad (laughs) I have to make a decision about going horizontal or vertical. I love the square. And, of course, I mean, come on, the direct flash. And between Ouija and Arbus, it, and, and, I, and I also had the opportunity to study with Modell, Lizette Modell, mm-hmm. when I came to New York. And that was a very decisive, decisive decision that I wanted to study with Lizette Modell. And I used my portfolio of Long Island. I, I, I kind of called them to my friends, and I said, Long Island, you know, Jewish princesses. <laughs> um, and I used that portfolio to get into Lizette Modell's class at the new school but it was a definitely a a direct decision of doing very honest playful photographs of people who were important to me Mm. and they were also very referencing you know my my father doing um sophisticated snapshots how's that yeah i like that you know if you were i mean i photograph i put on these ballet outfits and tap outfits and all these things that are still in the, in the attic because that also took pictures of me like that or prom, you know dressing up for the prom and, and of course my brothers as well but they didn't tap dance in ballet but boy scouts and girl scouts in special occasions those things that you wore mm-hmm. and how you post yourself so that was definite definite influence you can say yeah. and, I would, and I've always claimed it and, uh, and she should know it your your body of work includes the days in which you were partying with your girlfriends and going out to the discos and clubs during the 70s. And those those images are absolutely amazing. And they give such a, a unique and personal and intimate perspective of that time. Because I think when a lot of people think about that that time, they think about sort of the Hollywood version of it. They think about you know, cocaine, disco balls, open sexuality and stuff like that. But it was, it was about so much more. But you weren't going there as a documentary or photographer. You were there having a good time and you just happened to have a camera. Why did you bring a camera with you and just go out and party like everyone else your age was doing? Well, let's go back. Why did my, why was it every time I saw my grandfather, he had a camera with it? <laughs> it's like, well, uh, it was, uh, why, it was, here I was, I'd set up a dark room. I had a camera. I loved doing it. It was, I realized this is a way that I'd like 
to relate to the world. Mm-hmm. And moving to New York City was extremely exciting. And I was pursuing my interest in photography, though I was never pursuing it commercially. I always mm-hmm. never thought my work was commercially viable. Yeah. And I was working as a freelance illustrator. But photography was my passion. And like I said, I set up a darkroom. I bought film. And I was developing it. Darkroom was in my cousin's laundry room. And, and printing. And also a very good stroke of luck in that time. So, so from 19, I moved to New York City in August of 1975. In 1970s. Seven and seventy-eight. I was a no. Excuse me. Seventy-eight and seventy-nine. I was a CETA photographer. C E T A. Comprehensive Employment Training Act it was like the WPA of the seventies, and I applied for and was accepted to be a documentary f- photographer, CETA photographer for the American Jewish Congress, documenting Jewish New York using my Long Island suburbia Jewish family pictures and friends Mm -hmm. it was part of my portfolio to get in and the best thing about that was I had a regular steady income I made ten thousand dollars a year I felt I was rich Mm -hmm. and so I was doing my documentary Jewish New York during the day and going out dancing all night so I think that things like grants and fellowships and opportunities shows accolades no it 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 helped it boosts your self-esteem and confidence in what you're doing but I started doing that earlier. But I was saying that really helped, mm-hmm. and so I it, so the, so my CETA grant didn't just make this archive of Jewish New York during the day and start me in a, a teaching career. It actually helped me have the confidence and the will and the desire to photograph everything I saw yeah. and and save it. So so t- tell me about the scene because you know it firsthand. I was a young buck. Back there, seeing when I would visit New York, seeing my cousins going uh-huh. out to the clubs, and when I would see them like leaving at like midnight, and I was I'm in L.A. Midnight, Mid- come on, four a.m. <laughs> no, but, no, they're leaving. They're leaving the apartment where we're staying okay. with them at midnight, and in L.A. I'm like that. That doesn't happen. Usually, they leave a lot earlier. I'm going. You're leaving now? I said, yeah, this is early because they intend to be out all okay. night. To me, that was. Uh, unfathomable, but I was too young to go out there and find out what trouble they were getting into. But I really am curious. I mean, I want to talk about your photographs, but I want to, what was that experience like at that time for you? What was so thrilling about it? Well, I think you could see us having a ball. Mm-hmm. It started, my, my cousins and I moved into her house. She was Elaine, the Rosner, as Elaine Rosner and her, her sister Jerry and sister Barbara, they just had so many different kinds of friends, you know, literary circles, feminist circles, the Puerto Rican arts community. I mean, I just was going to so many different kinds of clubs at night and, and meeting different kinds of people, and that was great. And then in 1970, in February of 1977, I took another class at the new school with someone named Bob Edelman. And I was, uh, it was about making your own book. And it was supposed to be a, a book about my Long Island series. But he did invite me to go to something on February 14th at the Copacabana called the Coyote Hookers 
masquerade ball. <laughs> and and C-O-Y-O-T-E, and that stood for cast off your old, tired ethics. I dressed as my Girl Scout outfit. I didn't know what to expect. And I went there, and it was really like a, um, let's see, it was the leader of Coyote was someone named Margot St. James. And I would, I, in my little, my mind, I would say it was like a organization, like union, trying to unionize prostitution, you know, <laughs> you know, like rights and health rights and really self-esteem and it was union work. And they were having a, a, a ball on, on Valentine's Day and it was a wild, wild party. And they were obviously working men and women. I, mean, I would say you know, sex workers mm-hmm. in fant- amazing outfits, showing off their best. And there were definitely clientele there, as well as a lot of paparazzi, as a lot of onlookers. Whoever was invited there, there were some even some people in the movie industry. And there I was with my camera, and, I, and what a bunch of photographs those were. And I, and it was the first time I really heard that it was like I said the Copacabana a really great system with souped up disco going full blast. I've been to clubs in Wisconsin and things like that, but it didn't compare to like the sound system and the costumes and the party atmosphere that I experienced at, on, on February fourteenth, nineteen seventy seven, and around a, a week shortly after there. I went to Mardi Gras because I had gone to a workshop. I was showing my portfolio around and going to workshops, trying to you know, study photography. And I went to ICP, International Center of Photography. And somehow I showed my portfolio. I did. I showed my portfolio. And honestly, people went crazy. I was... Cornell Kappa invited me to show his work. The someone Michael Smith, who was a photographer from New Orleans, who's having a solo show there, mm-hmm. loved my work. Wanted to trade with me. Someone a, a White House photographer was there. Loved my work. Wanted to trade with me. The Michael Smith, who's a one of the great documentarians of New Orleans, and he invited me to come down to Mardi Gras. So I took a a bus called the, I think it was called the Gray Rabbit Bus. It was like, I don't think, maybe like $59 round trip. Or maybe it was Green Tortoise. <laughs> I went on a bus. Maybe I think I had like $50 for the, the week. And I went to his house in Mardi Gras. What was amazing there was, am I guys, I'm going to say the wrong name. There's a really, I'm sorry, I have to look it up because I wasn't thinking about this story, but a really, really famous filmmaker was at his home who did work about, Food. I'll look it up later. I'm okay. I, sorry. I, I forgive me, but he's so so well so well known. It was like he was there. This woman via Winroth was there in the house. Well, guests of Michael, and she was the founding director of education at, at International Center of Photography. Vian and I went out, and we were Michael Michael Smith showed us like the real Mardi Gras. You know the the, the parties leading up to it. Mm-hmm. And taking us to the Tapatula Indians. I mean, really, we really, you know, the real authentic whole week of Mardi Gras. And V and I went around with our cameras. She had a little point in Diana 
point and shoot camera and I brought my Norita and those my nose photographs have not been seen. That, yeah. That's down working your nose down. Those those are insanely wonderful. So that now could continue to party. But on the bus coming back, there was a somebody on the bus named Judy, and she was a wild woman, and she was. Um, I asked if she'd like to pose for me sometime. She actually is actually. Um, for men's magazines, because I was <laughs> doing some illustrations for them under a pseudonym. And she was met somebody else on the bus who was a bartender at CBGB's, and she had a crush on him. So when we came back, we were going to CBGB's and visiting the, the bartender. And that was that was really great fun. And, it was, you know, just like, and I have these photographs of CBGB's. And, um, and then Studio 54 opened. And of course, everybody heard about it mm-hmm. and wanted to go there. I, I give Judy the credit. I, she, I think she called up the, for the first time, she called up the PR people for Studio 54. And this is the very beginning and got our name on the list that we were covering it. So we went, once is that like that, when you went there, you got all like, you put on outfits and you you know, get your way in. So the first time was on a, on a guest list. After that, the doorman knew you and let you in because I was cute, you know. And I brought my camera because that's what I love to do. Yeah. And and I photographed, but it wasn't just Studio 54, it was all the clubs. Yeah. They were popping up everywhere. And so, we, yes, going out maybe 11, but definitely 4 o'clock, <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, and you know, after hours clubs, it was a blast. I, but I didn't carry it everywhere. I'm like, oh, gee, I was at the Palladium. I was at the Mud Club. How come I don't have those pictures? <laughs> I guess sometimes I just went out and was having fun and not carrying the camera. Silly me. But most of the, many times I did, and I'm glad I did, because I didn't just photograph famous people. I photographed people I thought were very yeah, interesting. And that's, and that's one of the things that fascinates me about your work, visually, they're phenomenal. And then, you know, and, and in terms of historic context, some of the people that you photographed and all that is, is just amazing. But when I thought about your work, what really sort of struck me was you were photographing at a time and in a place where people that normally would never be together under virtually any circumstances were suddenly together. There was a black white, Latino, gay, straight, rich, poor. I mean, it was just a whole hodgepodge. And to think that, you know, even 10 years before, the idea that these people would be socializing together, acting out, having fun, would have been unheard of thinking back to the 60s, much less the 50s. So when I, when I take a look at your, your photographs, that's what strikes me. Today, that's normal. But back then, virtually anywhere in this country, except for maybe certain big cities, but New York was sort of a, a precursor to a sort of democratization of just having fun, where those social barriers that normally would have segregated all of those people, uh, those walls came down. And that's what's really fascinating about your, your photographs, is that you provide a really first-person account 
that is not distant or objective, right? You get a real mm-hmm. sense that. Oh, I'm only, right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it seems like you, just like you would ha- had affection and respect for your own family members that you were photographing, that comes off in the photographs of all the people that you photographed in the clubs. Thank you. I appreciate that very much because I, I, I think that is a core of a, of something I, who I am. I do have a high respect for lots of different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And or just people being themselves, you know. I, just, I think I've, it's part of my nature, but it's also part of the attraction for me as someone who grew up in very segregated Long Island. Mm-hmm. You know, just moving to New York City. I mean, I grew up in a town, Massapequa. It was nicknamed Matza Pizza. It was like you know, Italian, <laughs> Jewish, Irish, basic first and second generation white Americans. There was a town next to us, Amityville. That was that was an African American town, and they were separate. And so, what I found it so refreshing to just move to New York City in general, meet my cousin's friends who were all different colors and backgrounds and interests, and from economic levels on an equal plane, mm-hmm. and then going out to clubs. And of course, and I and I had come out as a as gay. As a queer woman, lesbian, whatever you want to call it, I was gay, and I was going places where it was okay. We aren't okay. I, I actually like mixed clubs, and my friend Judith was straight, so that's not who I like to go to places that was just a mix. Mm-hmm. I like the mix. I mean, to me, that's the magic of a place like New York City, and still is the diversity of it. Now, of course, it was a different kind of segregation going on, um, bridge and tunnel crowd. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that, so, so explain more, that. Explain that. Uh, yeah, please. yeah. Like just Studio Fifty Four, even though the owners were from Brooklyn, if you were perceived as being from the Bridge and Tunnels, you may not have been in there. And there were other clubs that would have themes of you know, Brooklyn Night or Queens Night or so. But that was that's kind of like kind of funny in some ways, especially since now you know, the the outer boroughs are the, the hip clubs. Mm-hmm. But I did find that wonderful because it wasn't just you'd go in and it would be hairdressers, you know, someone like me, a freelance illustrator, someone just getting by uh, on their bartending job. Not all, when I be, it ended when I became a teacher, you know, mm-hmm. I could not being have to. You, there weren't too many people had to get up at six o'clock in the morning and then be in charge of a room full of kids by eight o'clock in the morning and really being conscious that that slowed down the nightlife so that so as people with flexible hours i'd say <laughs> unless on the weekends it was wealthy poor they were from uh, yes they were from other boroughs and other areas <laughs> they dancing hobnobbing you didn't get a sense that there was you could be next to someone who's very well known and i didn't feel like there was a security next to them mm-hmm at all and also a lot of people of different ages and 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 people you can see by, by photographs there's a lot of people who you would might call transgender people though they might would say cross-dresser or trans I don't know my most word but just everyone was everybody and no everybody was anybody you had all different kinds of people who loved dancing music the scene and it was also very, it was very exciting because it, it was kind of growing around you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a music and dance form that dance that kind of came from under your feet and was 
blossoming everywhere, and it, and it felt it felt like you were in the midst of it all. And it was kind of, and then another club would pop up, and you'd go check that one out. So, yeah. and then, and the different theme parties, and 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 of course, there's no internet, so it was word of mouth or like a printed invitation. It was a different way of knowing. And New York City was it was New York City was a time that it was known, you know, the famous thing is New York drop dead. You know, it was, it was, it was mm-hmm. financially in, in, the, in the going through very difficult times. And yet these clubs were able to open in gigantic spaces because probably very relatively inexpensive. I mean, prohibitive now. Yeah. And it was opened, I guess, an open door to anyone with a lot of enthusiasm and interest. So just go out and explore and meet different kinds of people. Before we get back to the show, I just wanted to let you know that this Wednesday, March 13th, 2019, I'll be a guest on Scott Kelby's The Grid to promote my new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow. The show broadcasts live beginning at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. You'll find it on Kelby One's YouTube channel, and it would be great if you could tune in that day and, and give me your support. You'll find the link in the show notes. And on Saturday, March 16th, I will be taking part in a panel about book publishing at the Los Angeles Center of Photography's Open House. I, along with some other photographers, will discuss how we each have navigated the world of publishing. So if you are in Los Angeles and have always wondered how to get your work published, you should join us. You can find out more by visiting lacphoto.org or look in our show notes for more information. And remember, we still need your support in our effort to reach 100 new Patreon supporters. We are so close to reaching our goal. So become a Patreon supporter and commit to a reoccurring donation of $5 or more a month. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame or click on the link in the show notes or the candid frame website. Thanks and back to the show. Well, you mentioned that you had to stop clubbing when you started teaching, and you started teaching in, in Bushwick, and that led to a whole new body of work. Uh, tell me about that. Okay, in nineteen, okay, I had my, I had that CETA job, Hans Employment Training Act, and when I got that grant, my dad said, "Yo, when are you going to get a real job?" I, as part of my CETA training, you had to, it was also to train you to be. You know, to work in the world, and I did vol- my I did my CETA volunteer work as a teacher because I had this teaching license and I was scared to teach. And I so I did volunteer t- teaching of homebound handicapped and kids at a educational alliance. And when when CETA ended, I had a steady paycheck. I illustrating. I was always waiting for the. The check, the check was always in the mail. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in the mail as quickly as the bills were arriving. And I decided to 
use my teaching experience and, and my degrees and apply for a job. And I got a for the first in the September of 1979. So this Employment Training Act worked. The United States got a teacher out of me because of this Employment Training Act. It actually worked. And I started for the first September 79 through through June of 1980, I was I worked four days a week through a program called Learning to Read Through the Arts. First, the first year I was in the Upper West Side. The second year I was in the Lower East Side, which was very different than the Lower East Side is today. And then the third year, I mean, there were different programs. So it was four days a week, meaning I had no health care or sick days. I had my name on a list to get a permanent job. You're a waiting list mm-hmm. to be appointed for a permanent job. The third year, I was put in a, a school placement in East New York. And then in, in December of that year, I received a, a letter in the mail and letting me know that your know, file number 489361, there's a job for you. At, or you, you, you can go for an interview for, for a middle school teaching job at Intermediate School 291 and gave me the address. And it was for an appointed position, meaning you're like a serf. And <laughs> I mean, I mean, it meant a position with five, a five day a week job with healthcare and, and a chance to get tenure and a chance for you know, sick days and things like that, it was benefits. And, and essentially you said, I always thought it said you you go over an interview and if you didn't take the job you'd be in the back of the list, bottom of the list for a job again. But when I recently in the last few years found the piece of paper that said you could accept your job or you are off the list, you will never get a chance to get to get appointed again for a full time job. So in December of, uh, of 1980, I. Take this to subway, and I get out in Bushwick, Brooklyn, to go, to go for my interview to, to Roland Hayes Intermediate School Two Ninety One. I'd never been in Bushwick before, but I'd heard of it because in July of nineteen seventy seven, there was a tremendous, there was a big blackout in New York City, and on the night of the blackout. Myself and my friend Judy, my disco friend, we were supposed to go down to Studio 54 because one of the owners, Ian Schrager, had she invited her to come to a private party at Studio 54, I mean, like one of the private rooms. And we'd never been to one of the private, you heard about the private rooms, never been to one of those rooms. And of course, if Judith was invited, Meryl's going along too. And so we went to, got all dressed up to go out that night, and it's dark. Go to the subway. Subway's not running. There's no lights on the Upper West Side where I was living. It's like, okay. So we got on our bicycles and and pedaled down to Studio 54, and there were no lights on Columbus Circles. You didn't know what's going on. There's like no lights anywhere. So the only lights were the, the headlights of the cars. Go to Studio 54, just leave the bikes there, pounding on the door, no answer. <laughs> boom, 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 no answer. It's like, okay. Took the bike, went back home. The next day, 
she says that she was calling the telephone, trying to call to call, call Studio 54, but not getting through. The next day, the whole world, or my world, heard about a place called Bushwick where there were the where there was rioting and looting and you saw pictures in the newspaper of that place that was like destitute and going through really hard times. And it's like, I, it was never on my radar that that's where I did. There would be someplace I would seek out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did go to see the, you know, the discotheque where they filmed staying alive, uh, John, John Travolta. Yeah. <laughs> I did go to, to some out there. I didn't take photographs there. Silly me. I didn't know I was. I didn't know it was history. <laughs> I didn't know I was recording history. I was just recording life. And when I got out in Bushwick, I was. I mean, I was shocked. I mean, I got out and it looked like a bomb hit it the week before. It, I mean, it looked like Hiroshima. I mean, it was just rubbles of buildings and closed up buildings. It was. Just, down, right down the line. And I had been to, during my Cedar Grant, I went up to the South Bronx to see where I was born, where my family lived. You know, I, Lower East Side was a dicey area. I mean, I went up to Harlem. I went to, I mean, I, I went around, you know, many different neighborhoods. I'd never seen anything like Bushwick at that time, what it looked like. And I was like, here I am, like with my you know, little suit and my portfolio. And I go down, down the block, block after block of a, Closed, very, you know, very few inhabited buildings. And this is school that kind of looks actually like a little like a prison. You know? <laughs> and I go in and it's, it's a middle school. So it's kind of chaotic to begin with because that's kind of part of the nature of middle school and being a middle school child, mm. intermediate schools. You, know, you were probably bad then oh, yeah. too. And I... <laughs> And I go to the principal's office, and and he's like wearing a three piece suit, a very a gentleman, a real gentleman, very nice. And he's telling me that he too was an art teacher. Backtrack. When I get out of subway and I see what I see, I'm thinking it looks like Beirut of the time. I had a cousin. There was a war going on on Beirut. I had a cousin who was a editing for television and describing what Beirut looked like. And when I've seen pictures of it, I said, looks like Beirut, Beirut. I also wondered as I got out of the subway saying, why is there a job available the week before Christmas? Maybe they killed the other art teacher. <laughs> that, was, that went through my head. There's a possibility. Why would there be a job available? And I went in there and like and showed some of my work, work that I did with students through this learning to read through the arts program, showing my you know, my portfolio of teaching. And I remember he was like sitting there drawing out his own desk blotter calendar because he was an artist. And I'm like, it seemed very surreal because it really was kind of chaotic. No, it was chaotic. And I said yes, because I wanted a job. And, there's, and then, like that letter said, if I didn't take that job, I wasn't going to get this. This job would benefit. And it was something else, let me tell you that. You know, like I didn't, I didn't carry a camera until February, because this, the June before, on the last day of school, of, I taught photography in these other programs. I love photographing, but classroom management is really hard. 
for a young teacher or for me. And I had, and also the photographs I wanted to, the photographs that were interesting of kids was not the behavior I wanted to elicit from them. So I didn't photograph a lot. I, I was letting the kids be the photographers. But in the last year of school, uh, if I had brought my camera to take pictures and we were having a party and an intruder came into the classroom, a man with a suit, looking at me, got my eye contact and he said, give me your camera. I have a gun. I gave him my camera. I didn't ask to see my gun. You know, that was it. I gave him my camera. I was like, and so this, the camera I have now is really a duplicate because the other one was robbed. It was the same mm -hmm. kind of camera, but that one was stolen or taken from me or I gave it up. Who knows? He probably didn't have a gun, but I wasn't and wasn't questioning it. So that was on my mind. And that certainly wasn't at, at all as perceived as scary as Bushwick seemed. I mean, think about it. I was teaching in East New York. That seemed fine to me. Going to Bushwick looked a lot different than anything I'd ever seen. So I didn't carry a camera because it didn't seem like it was a wise thing to do. Then going back and forth, getting out of the subway, walking to school, coming back and forth, I, I couldn't resist because I was seeing more. It wasn't just buildings and garbage around. There were people, and I noticed kids would be, you know, playing basketball. They would do a makeshift, makeshift uh, basketball hoop. They would playing jump dope. They, they, you started recognizing people. So I got a point and shoot camera at the February. If I started, I started in December. By February, I, I bought one of the early point and shoots, loaded it with color film because. Being a full-time teacher, I certainly wouldn't have time to be in the dark room anymore. And I, you know, I was going out on weekends, but that was going out, you know, that was becoming less and less because you have less in plans and you have to get up. That was a different point in my life. I was, I was exhausted. And I used color slide film, put in my camera, and when, when I get out of the subway, just photograph what I saw going to school and what I saw coming back. And if a lot of the rooms in the school building didn't have windows, because that's the style, they thought it was all the air conditioning. If I saw something out the window that was interesting, I photographed out the window. If there was a fire drill, I carried it in a fire drill. And I had the film developed and just put it in boxes and write down what it was. Yeah. And I did this for 14 years. I taught in that neighborhood for 14 years. It started a photography program for our teacher. They were starting an attendance improvement, dropout prevention program when the teachers noticed that I'm always taking photographs and asked if I wanted to start a photography program, and I did. So, but in retrospect, because there's a long story about how these photographs came out, and we spent hours. When I looked at my pictures, I realized that most of them are really joyful. I didn't photograph crack vials. I didn't photograph junkies. I didn't photograph people strung out. I photographed really people being what most people are, mm -hmm. trying their best 
in every situation to live life to their fullest and wanting the best for themselves and their neighbors and their children. I was looking for upbeat, th- upbeat things because you know what? I didn't even photograph. People say, do you have photographs of all the graffiti? A lot of the graffiti were murals to kids who had been killed too young. I didn't photograph things like that either because I, I in retrospect, I was looking for upbeat things because I wasn't there for a day. I wasn't there for a week. I wasn't there on a summer. This was my job and I didn't, and I needed the yeah. job and I didn't want, I, I was looking for things that maybe want to come back the next day. And so if there were photographs of, landscapes that of buildings that are collapsed the light is beautiful i thought and sometimes i literally thought ansel adams would have taken that picture like i was looking for more i i appreciate that about your work because that's a um being a person of color especially in an area that you know that the way it's perceived outside of that community is very rigidly defined um, especially negatively, there's an expectation that if you do make photographs, that it's that's all it's going to be about. And for a large number of people, they're not into that crap. Like you said, they're just out there earning a living, trying to raise their families, trying to mind their business, trying to get through the day in any you know any sort of variety of ways. But I've seen plenty of times when people from outside of those communities look at photographs that are like yours, that are you know, focusing on the positive, the question is, where's this stuff? Where's this stuff that I'm expecting to see that you're not showing me? So I think that that your photographs are as true as anything else that covers the more negative aspects of it. Because I think there's a reality to any community, but specifically those communities, that is not so black and white. And I'm, I'm really appreciate that your photographs reveal a very honest reality that exists, even in the midst of all of those challenges that those people did and continue to have to live with. I appreciate that very much. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I photograph people that I, I saw every day. Kids I knew, their families. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I recognize people. They recognize me. I was, I didn't live in Bushwick. I never lived in Bushwick. But when you work someplace, you're spending most of your time there. Uh, and your photographs are likely the one of the few, if only, legacies, visual legacies of those communities. Because when people think about photography in New York, they're thinking about Manhattan, right? Not so much the boroughs that may have happened but not to the degree that it happened on man, you know on the main island well, well I, I think i need to give credit to some to, I, I like to the, that work of bushwick came out to to the open i was still a teacher in in 2000 i retired i retired in public school system for 31 years in i retired in 2010 in 2006 like the Winter of 2006, I received an email, because we're up to email already, from somebody named Adam Schwartz. And he was like, you know, he said, John Napoli, a friend, a colleague of mine, a teaching college, John Napolito um, gave me your name to contact. 
because um, I'm a history, I'm a, you know, he's, I love history. He's a history person who's teaching English as a second language at a school called IS-111. My wife taught in that, te- that school. And it was a school, that, you know, a couple blocks from my school. And, and she, she's always laughing, hearing the sto- stories from John Napolillo, how rough the neighborhood was in 19... 19- 70s and 80s and how you know how different it was and they would tell them these wild stories and and this guy adam was applying for a grant with the brooklyn historical society applying to do they were having a, a, a gallery where community people could apply to have a show there and he came up with the idea of doing a show on the theme of Up From Flames, the changes uh, in Bushwick from 1977 to 2007. And we started researching not just text, but trying to find photographs from the era. And when he said, when I'm, he was looking for photographs from the, the late 70s and through the 80s, all he could find were pictures of the blackout. You know, things were in the news. They were really mm-hmm. the same image, the same image, the same image. Couldn't even find them. He was researching, and he was still just the blackout pictures, and and looting, and you know those those those, those images. And John Napolillo, who I taught with for you know, twelve years, who's he and his wife Linda Napolillo, they kind of like taught me how to teach and how to have classroom management. And he said, "Contact Miss Meisler," because we were very formal. Miss, contact Meisler. She was always taking pictures. So he, this guy, Adam, emails me. I said, oh, yeah, I have pictures. I have lots of boxes of slides. Mark Bushwick, they're like in drawers in my, literally in my basement. And I'll get them out. I'll, I'll look for some. And, and here, this is the first time I really looked. And good, good thing on my boxes, I would you know, have the date and just major things, what Bushwick, schools, you know, major topics. So besides everything else, I was photographing. And I started looking through those boxes, and even though they were taking with this, or, you know, I think of a Canon sure, early Canon Sure shot, you know, with plastic lens, they were out of very small depth of field, a little pop-up flash. Some of the slides even had mold on them because they're against the wet wall. And but I'm looking through the images, and I s- started seeing the beauty in them. Mm-hmm. Okay. I made a selection to show Adam so we could do a proposal and we made a selection. I scanned them, you know, this is a different time of, t- time of life. You know, they had access to scanners. I scanned it and we made a proposal to do the show and it was accepted. And then we would, he was doing the research of, he was collaborating with other schools and interviews of people who lived through this period. And I'm like, Scanning my photographs and scanning my photographs. I took, I live across from the street from Fashion Institute of Technology and they had scanners there. So I took a, a golf class. I took a golf class so I could have access to the scanners. <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't even like doing printing my own work then, but I was using your scanners and touch and, and printing. I used their printing services and put up the show. And it was never anything like this. It was never a show about. Bushwick and the history of Bushwick and the show was up. It was well-received. And, but then I looked at the pictures and I became obsessed with them because I knew there was so much more. And also I'm a printer's daughter. My daddy was a printer. Mm-hmm. 
even though they look fine to prints, they weren't my aesthetic. They weren't how I saw the world. It's not the color. You know, right. you, know you look through the lens and you see things yeah, the yeah. way you see them. So then I became obsessed that I'm going to continue scanning these, do high risk scan, and I'm, I'm going to learn how to print my own work so I can print it the way I knew mm-hmm. the world looked to me. And I got a you know like a, a archival printer, and I'm like, and of course, like the same theme of breaking your new equipment. I'd break that, and I'd, I'd take classes how to print, and and I continued started to going through that work and printing it. And my friends, and I've always been a, 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 an artist who showed their work, or and if it wasn't straight photography, painting on photography, had many different series, and I'd, people would say, well, you know, what are you working on now? It's like. I'm, I'm going back into that Bushwick work. I I saw, you know, when I was photographing on the streets of Bushwick, I was conscious of my history of photography. I felt like Walker Evans. I knew Helen Levitt would have taken certain pictures of kids. I mean, I literally have pictures of twins and thinking these are Arbus twins. Of course I, I, I knew that. Like I said, the landscape, Ansel Adams would have taken that picture. Of course he would. And I kept looking through the box and looking through the boxes and seeing these, you know, there were gems here and I am just going to keep going through them. I don't care that the show's over. I, I, I was looking at my work objectively and kept looking and looking and looking and printing and printing and printing. And I, I cold turkey, I, I mean, I gave a presentation. I'm part of a group called professional women photographers and I gave a presentation to them, a slide presentation, and people say, "God, this work is so interesting." You know, maybe show it to the museum in city in New York. It's like, well, okay, I'm going to. And I cold turkey kept on calling and calling until I got the curator, Sean Cochran of the Museum City of New York. He did not know where I was. I certainly had no reputation mm-hmm. whatsoever, and and I said, "I have these photographs of Bushwick from the '80s," and he actually made an appointment. To for me to show them. I showed them. And I said, you know, it was talked a long time about them. And it, and I said, yeah, I'm, and I've got so much more that I haven't gone through. He said, well, come back and show me more. And I, so I'm doing this as I'm going through my last three years of teaching, you know, working full time, and I'm continuing to go through this work and printing it and, and starting to understand it. And then I have received an invitation to have a show, to submit a show at a place called Soho Photo Gallery. And somebody who liked, I used to do this underwater photographs, submerging New York City with my fish photographs. And this woman's name is Fish. And said, oh, I'd like you to do your your underwater stuff. I said, no, that's not what I'm interested in anymore. It's like, what is it? I want to show this Bushwick work. It's important. I don't know if they'll accept it. It's like, okay, well, I submitted it, and they did accept it. And I had this show, so I retired in June of 2010, a year, and I'm still printing away, and I got, had the first show in, in December 11, 2011, of these Bushwick work. And I wanted to reach out to Bushwick to get them to come, you know, people from Bushwick to really come. And I treated that, that show like it was a museum show. I gave it that, that amount of seriousness and and thought and the press release. I mean, I just t- t- 
removed myself from who I was and treated myself like a, like a best friend or a client and put my all into that. And it changed my life. And this work started being revealed. A, a wonderful story about that is that because I reached, I wanted people from Bushwick to come because the only people who came to the show at historical societies seemed like the people who collaborated on the show and a few of the politicians there that we interviewed, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the real Bushwick crowd. And so I reached out. I said, oh, look at that. There's a, something called the Bushwick Community Darkroom. I, it was an email. I contacted them. Oh, look, there's a blog called Bushwick Daily. I contacted them. They sent a reporter. It's like a little blog. And a, a reporter came from the Bushwick Daily. Some other, from other journals came. But Bushwick Daily, a, a young, she was really in, in journalism school. This person came and interviewed people, was doing a story about the show and filming. And, and then she emailed me like, I'm in the middle of my finals for school. I, I may not get this ad in time. I said, Please, you're talking to a teacher. Of course, your <laughs> your school comes first. When you can do it, you can do it. You know, it's like that's it. That's you have to do that. Well, but she so she did publish a a piece about the show, and with some video clips of it that she she made, and. So the show was in December. We got I'm gonna say we really got a, it got press. People came. People came from all over. So people heard about it. I made a little sensation. And then in late January, early February, I think if it's over, I get an email in my spam request. It's just, you know, through my Earthling, at the time I had Earthling, it was a spam request. And this, this request, the, the title kind of said, I'm in one of your photographs and I'm floored. It's like, I opened up this email and I don't have it anymore because so I'll, I'll tell you a continuing story. And this email was an introduction. Someone named, my, introduced herself, saying my name is Vanessa Martyr. I grew up on Palmetto Street in Bushwick. I'm a writer now. I'm a teaching artist, meaning like a writer in the schools. And I've been, was doing doing a workshops at Bushwick High School, which was down the block from where where I taught. And and the kids were kind of complaining about, you know, what a dumpy neighborhood this is. And you know, a, I'm not gonna say the word, but so I said a B. And she she said, Oh, you have no idea what this was like. <laughs> I grew up here. You know, like I grew up here in the late seventies and eighties and this is like so nice now you have no idea what and the teacher in charge because she wasn't a licensed teacher you have to have a licensed teacher the teacher in charge said you should look up the work of Meryl Meisler and which floored me that this a teacher and someone I didn't know in this high school knew my name Mm. and of my work and told Vanessa you know you should check out her work so there was a break I guess a you know, she had a break between classes. Vanessa went to the computer and Googled my name, comes up with this this thing on Bushwick Daily with a little video play, quick time movie playing. And she says, she stopped like in her tracks. She saw a picture of her family. 
and he, she's in the picture with oh, her yeah, family I remember when you playing talked about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she contacted me. I mean, but in the email, she says, and I'm working on my memoir, and I'm on the chapter where some, I've just finished a story about something that's been really hard about the man who molested me as a child. And he's the guy looking out the window, looking at the photographer, you know, like looking at you. And I went, mm. <gasps> I slammed my, I, I had a knee jerk reaction. I slammed my, I just like deleted the email. I was in such shock. Right. I deleted the email. And then I was like, what did I do? But I still had the spam request. Mm. I mean, I deleted the email and threw it away. I was, in, I was in a state of shock. And and then I um, Googled her name. I said, oh, she, you know, make sure it's, it's a real person. She's not in jail somewhere or mm-hmm. the most, America's most wanted over 18. And I started saying, oh, she's a, a performer. She's a, 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 a real writer. She's a, written a book. She's given performance. It's like, oh, how interesting. She grew up in a same-sex household in Bushwick. What if I contact her through the email? And we met on on Mardi Gras, February, which is a Mardi Gras is a theme in my life. You know, Mardi Gras is very important when I met Mardi, important people. And we met in Mardi Gras, February of 2012. Right? My show was in December of 2011. February, we met for the first time on February 2012. She came to my apartment, I showed pictures. And she, uh, we were both, I think we both were practically crying. It's like my photographs kind of were her life story. Mm. Even if she, there's this one picture of her in it and her whole family, but everything. It's like mostly of the blocks she grew up with. And her stories, because I, I actually ordered one of her books, her stories, and I started reading little clips. I mean, she, these were the kids I taught. Yeah. I mean, I pretty, I'm pretty sure I taught her brother. And... And right there at the spot, we just knew we needed to collaborate together. We just needed to. I said, you know, yes, she said, she's going to write the story, her memoir, and my pictures will be in it. I said, absolutely. I said, but you know what? I want to show this work in Bushwick. There's this thing called Bushwick Open Studios, and I want to get my work in there. So I said, we'll do it together. She said, yes. And it became, it's like, okay, and I'm, writing to other galleries, trying to show people my work. And, and then it was announced, and again, through this Bushwick Daily blog, a, a new gallery popping up, opening up, and it's for underrepresented people. Bing, that's us. Bing, that's me. Uh, people into education. Bing, that's me. Community. Bing, that's me. So I emailed this person, and I said with Nissa Frank starting something called the Living Gallery. I have this portfolio of Bush from the 80s. said, I'd love to see it. And gallery gallery didn't even open yet. I said, I have a writer I'm working working with. would like to come together. Okay. We met on April <laughs> April Fools on and in in the space that was going to be the gallery, which really looked like a dump right then and open up the portfolio of photographs. She's going through this and she said, I'd like to give you a show. It's like, mm-hmm. okay. And yeah, so we want to have a show with Vanessa's writing and my photographs. Like, okay. So well, I'd like to have a show in Bushwick Open Studios, which was like two months later. She said, okay. And, and that was it. Yeah. And we, Vanessa and I, and Vanessa's blessing, we, we, we knew the, we planned out this entire show. The 
everything. The, the press had, I mean, the press releases, the writing, the printing, my partner, Patricia, who also you met, taught in Bushwick before she became a, a broadcast designer. She did, did the graphics for it. We, we knocked ourselves out and the opening night was a smash. German TV came the net, that weekend. It was Bushwick Open Studios and it was people pouring in and out, in and out. And I had a sign-in book. I said, oh God, look at this. Isn't this funny? Somebody wrote down, signed in and saying that they were the art critic of the New York Times, Holland Cotter. Someone signed that, that Holland Cotter was there. I said, isn't that funny? <laughs> well, Nissa, the, the, the gallerist, this young woman who's opening this gallery, her mother's an artist. And she looks at me, she says, Meryl, see that man over there? That is Holland Carter, the art critic of the New York Times, came to this show and wrote it up in this piece about Bushwick Copa Studios. And that was a miracle. You know, that was a miracle. So Your story. Bushwick, Bushwick launched my art career. You know, relaunched, gave back. I've got one more question for you. But before I, I even say that, I, I, uh, one, I love you, okay? I, I, I just I just adore you. And your story for me is so inspiring. And there's so many takeaways from it, especially here talking to you. But I think that uh, the thing that's really sort of key for me, and it's been on the forefront of my mind, is that oftentimes when photographers pick up a camera, they think that the most interesting things to photograph are things outside of themselves. And you are the perfect example that you can photograph your own life, your own experiences, the people within, you know, the year, you know, in your vicinity, in any variety of different ways, and make a significant body of work that matters. And, Thank you very much. And I think that not enough people think that their, you know, their own life experience is worthy of attention with respect to a camera. And I think if anybody takes away anything from listening to this conversation, I would love for them to sort of reconsider the value of that because you, you know, you've, you've demonstrated that uh, given persistence, uh, talent, and um, tenacity that, you know, some... Somebody can, if not necessarily have a career as a quote-unquote photographer, can nevertheless produce a body of work that will and does make a difference. So I just want to say that uh, to you about you and your work, and I'm so glad that I had a chance to meet you. Well, I am very glad. And, and uh, okay, and one more thing. Mm -hmm. That same opening, even more important. A stranger came up, this French guy, just said, I just love your work. He came to the show because he was buying a building in Bushwick and he was looking up the area and, all, and he found the, the website that we did for the Brooklyn Historical Society. And he said, I just think your work is great. Yeah, I love it. I just wanted to meet you and say hello. So that's it. A year later, we had another show at Bushwick Gopa Studios, take a break. I walk into this bar, Spurl Club, and the same man says, hello, this is my place. This guy, John Stefan Sauvert, who's a man from France 
who moved to Bushwick, who I found out it was a filmmaker and he's a director, opened a club, a drag burlesque club in Bushwick. And he invited me to show in the basement of a drag burlesque club in Bushwick. And first I was gonna say, no, I mean, I've had to work in museums, you know? And Vanessa said, don't be such a snob. <laughs> so that's where I, I had this show and I got the idea to exhibit my disco work because of that. He ended up publishing my work. So if I just I think if anything I'd like to report to, to anyone else is you don't know who is important in your life. The stranger, you know, welcome. Mm-hmm. I'm a Jew, but a tenant of Judaism is welcome the stranger. That's awesome. I think that, that present, welcome the stranger that you pass on the street. Welcome the strangers that come into your life. Everybody you meet is important. Mm-hmm. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend one other photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who that one photographer be and why? I would like to suggest my longtime friend, Tequila Minsky. She is a working street photographer, journalist who's so underrecognized and she's, she's the real deal. No, she's and she too is a big. I mean, she actually was there during her Hades earthquake and revealed that work to the world. To, to the world. I mean, she's she's an amazing photographer and a person who more people should know about. So, I, without a doubt, I was, I'm going to suggest to Hila Minsky. All right. Well, thank you for this suggestion and thank you so much for your time. I had so much fun thank talking you. with you. Pleasure. Thanks to Merle for sharing her time and her story. You can find out more about her and her work by visiting her website at merylmeisler.com. And I'll be in Washington, D.C. in May for the Focus on the Story Photographic Conference. The International Photo Festival will feature some of the world's best photojournalists and documentary photographers, as well as talks, photo walks, and workshops, of which I am teaching one. If you want to sign up for my workshop or just want to find out more about the event, visit focusonthestory.org. And remember to check out my YouTube channel, where I discuss different aspects of photography by pulling images from listeners like you who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr pool. You can check out the TCF Flickr pool and our YouTube channel, by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. In it, I translate how to see and use light and shadow, line and shape, color and gesture to make great photographs. It's more than just how to make a good picture, but how you can develop a personal and intimate way of seeing and documenting the world around you. You can order the book today. And when you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code PORELLO40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, please take the time to write a review in the iTunes stores. It helps our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. 
You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Allison Cobb, David Taylor, Sanjay Vijayanathan, and Robert Coffey for their recent contributions. I so appreciate it. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today, and you'll find it where everything else is, in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at EbodyNX. And this is EbodyNX, and this is The Candid Frame.